Hey everybody, welcome back to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, uh, where we break down the health tech news uh, so you don't have to every single week. Uh, my name's James, and with me today, I have uh, Hugh and Adama from the Somex team, and I have a very special guest, Christy Brooks uh, from Arcturus. So Christy, hello, and welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast. How are you doing? Hi, James. Thank you so much for having me here today. That's uh, It's very exciting to join you all. I was saying earlier, weren't we, before we started recording, that we get people that are actually qualified to talk about things like interoperability and uh, information governance and things like that. You are more than qualified to talk about these things uh, today. So, uh, yeah, give our audience a little flavour of your background and what you do at Arcturus. I am Director of Data Strategy and Partnerships at Arcturus. And Arcturus is a real-world data company, and we provide insights and findings to life sciences companies by ingesting large-scale NHS data and other source data, real-world data, for research purposes. And then we're able to apply both very classical statistical methods and novel data science techniques to that data to derive meaning from it so we can apply that to support clinical development and drug discovery. Previously head of business operations at Sunshine Health and prior to that, head of commercial data and innovation at Oxford University Hospitals. Excellent. So as I say, more than qualified to uh, to talk on the Pigeon podcast today about a few of the things that we've got coming up. Um, and of course, lawyer by background. So we are going to slightly watch we say, uh, watch what we say for a change. <laughs> I'll go gentle. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Cool. So into the stories. Our first story today, so 23andMe are considering splitting up the company to revive the stock price. So uh, shares of 23andMe famously uh, going quite downhill recently, reported here in CNBC uh, as a dismal third quarter fiscal 2024 result. Uh, so they're discussing splitting into two to help raise the stock price. Um, their revenue has gone down from 67 million to 45 million and received, oh God, this, I mean, I, I panic when I get an HMRC letter through the post, but they received a deficiency letter from the NASDAQ listing qualifications department, giving them 180 days to bring its share price back above a dollar. <sighs> sounds like a heck of a bad day. Christy, you've had a read of this. What's going on? What do you think? Well, I, I can definitely see the sense in, in considering splitting up those two offerings, um, having come from Sensine Health and understanding exactly how, how mm. it is to be so as a listed company, understanding that, you know, revenues are difficult to derive in, in, in these sorts of industries. And I think, you know, they, they do face an uphill challenge. The, the logic to me in being able to pull these two things apart from a consumer apps perspective and then from a, a research perspective, I think, is that you're able to really achieve some clarity in terms of what you're using data for and who your, who your customer is. Mm. I think sometimes that can provide greater clarity in a business and it does help you to understand really what the most important thing is to be to that particular client. From a governance perspective, I think it gives you clarity too because you can start to ensure that you're... Um, you're really focusing on those elements of transparency and accountability to your data providers, which, of course, for 23andMe will be uh, their consumer base. And obviously, there's been quite a lot of history with 23andMe in terms of uh, data breaches. 
And I think that they they are they would do well to turn their focus on winning back that public faith in that and really driving that transparency and accountability. If you can see that as a slightly separate endeavor to how you then take insights and apply them um, across different products or, or different service offerings, I think it does give you a little bit of flex to, to tackle those business problems quite quite separately. Mm. It's it's interesting, isn't it? Like there I mean, they do have two very different offerings, as you say, two very different audiences, two very different types of customer a consumer business and a therapeutics business. Hugh, you've had a read of this. What do you think? Yeah, I'm quite interested in this one, particularly on that, like, getting that clarity piece um, of splitting up the two companies. I mean, obviously, they've made, I mean, just to make it very clear, the article makes it clear they've, they've made no decisions yet. These are all considerations. These are all challenges. I think, for me, there's that interesting point about, A, they've got all of the legal challenges coming up with, with that data breach. B, they've got, a real problem with the public trust, as you mentioned, Christy. And there's that that third point, which is that consumer business is really struggling to generate revenue. Because not just mm. have they got the trust issues, they've got that whole, well, once you've done it, mm. you don't have to do it again and you don't have to pay for it again. So that's that's it. So I guess there's, there's probably someone internally saying, how do we, you know, can we make a subscription model? Can we do something that keeps that revenue generating in? A really, really cynical part of me is wondering whether that, uh, whether they almost have that clarity now. Um, and this is pure speculation, shouldn't be read as much. But if dividing the two into two different companies is sort of just letting one company, which is possibly really struggling and potentially failing and really, really going to have those challenges have the liabilities of those data breach lawsuits give ever give it everything bad you know give it everything bad that's coming uh, that's coming its way let them deal with that and then move over to the company that's probably got some future and then comes the rebrand and then comes the, yeah. the name change <laughs> and yes all of a sudden <laughs> interesting let's split it into two hive off the bit that doesn't work and go ahead with the bit that does but i'm also interested to know whether you know presumably and in its current form having access to that consumer data having this, this big pool of data is actually really valuable for the for the, the, the more therapeutic side the bit that works with um i guess the medical industry the therapeutics industry and a bit more and i wonder what once you've done that separation piece and perhaps almost if you lose the consumer business entirely does it become a buyer of data again does it does it stop being the generator, does it start being the buyer and start going up into quite a competitive market um, yes, and lose its sort of big USP? I think that's exactly the uh, the sensitivity that I would be looking at in, in that position. I think that that consumer, that consumer offering is a very, very valuable data source for your therapeutics business. And so there will be a dependency in that that you need to make sure that you're aware of. I, I don't think that that's necessarily impossible to achieve as two separate entities. I think that I think you have to map out and understand those dependencies and, and contract accordingly. Uh, I do think, though, that freeing the data collection um, consumer uh, element of this business from the constraints around using that for, for research can be helpful because you can start to think about your data provider, your patient, and understand what would be meaningful for them to see from their data um, with greater focus because you're not trying to be all things to all people. So 
in a world in which you can run a very successful uh, data data collection company, which, which can meet the needs of those consumers, you can start to think about how do we start to take the insights from that data, which we're currently passing back to to those um, customers, really more than patients, but but try to add some services on top of that, which can, which can help them to realize the benefits of that data collection in their everyday lives. So your customer becomes much clearer in that lens. Um, you would still have a, a very valuable data acquisition pipeline for therapeutics, which obviously they have demonstrated with their partnerships with GSK and others. You know, this mm-hmm. is useful data. And I think it's data that we we need to work to incorporate more in in healthcare and life sciences um, when we're considering how to make decisions around patients, how to how to discover drugs, how to inform clinical development plans. There's a there's a definite need for the granularity of data that they're able to produce. So, um, I think it's a I think it's a difficult time to be in data. I think it's a difficult time um, sometimes when there are so many opportunities that you can sometimes become a little less a little less focused on really what you need to do to make the business work. And I think swamped by a, a vast amount of, of, of perceived requirement um, in industry. So I think having this clarity and, and potentially looking at these things slightly separately, but as independent um, would uh, or interdependent would be an interesting challenge to be faced with. I would look at it as an opportunity, certainly um, in, in their shoes. Are you calling your stockbroker anytime soon, Christy? Are you uh, 63 cents, <laughs> 63 cents, you can get in at the floor. It will be interesting to watch um, what their uh, plans are in terms of whether they they do take it private. I think there's they've got to have those thoughts themselves as well around um, you know they've they've obviously referenced in in some interviews and um, in the the news article that we looked at the investor profiles differing in this space. I think that is also very true. So there we have it, twenty three and me um, doing what they can to try and rise that share price still. A lot of uh, unsurety. They're not really giving us much confidence or perhaps not giving the market that much confidence just yet. I think once they do have some firm plans, looks like people will be taking a look and uh, maybe they can maybe they can raise that stock price. Who knows? So... Our next story today is from Politico. Artificial intelligence is making critical healthcare decisions and the sheriff is missing in action. Healthcare regulators are saying they need more people and more power to monitor the new tech. Now, the Somex team, uh, me, Hugh, Adam, and a few few of us others uh, had a talk from Keith Grimes the other day. He kindly came to our team day gave us a talk on generative AI and the use of generative AI in healthcare. Now, taking a very official line, generative AI has not been regulated as a medical device. It cannot be used. Some AI, however, has. And in order to be used for clinical decision support or to make clinical decisions, dare I say the words, diagnosis or indeed treatment, if it's a talking therapy that can be delivered by language, um, these things have to be regulated uh, via the, you know, the MHRA, the FDA, etc., etc. Now, where Politico is saying artificial intelligence is making critical healthcare decisions and that the sheriff is missing in action. It's a heck of a claim, but 
having worked in healthcare and seen things like WhatsApp being used by clinicians on the ground floor just because it's convenient, I can completely see that AI will actually be used currently on the ground floor and perhaps not uh, in the proper ways of doing so. There's a question there about liability if doctors are choosing to use it, if nurses are choosing to use it, if anybody involved in diagnosis or indeed treatment is choosing to use it, then indeed it falls on their heads when it goes wrong. But uh, lots going on. Um, Christy, you've had a read. What do you think? Well, I think one of the things that we probably need to be aware of is, is what we deem to be critical. I think you know yes. this is a it's a big statement, um, and I think sometimes there is an, an underestimation of what is a critical decision in healthcare. We can all look at a diagnosis point and understand that to be a very critical item, but there are a lot of steps uh, along the process for a patient and for a, a clinician, which are which, which lead you in a direction, and um, they do do influence. And I think sometimes we fail to recognize the significance of the way that information is gathered, the way that information is presented along that along that decision-making journey. So the influence on a decision can can come a lot earlier than the point of a diagnosis or a major a major event that has been AI supported. I think there's a, a definite um, a definite value in clinicians questioning along the line, you know, am, am I in receipt of the right information? Is the information in front of me leading me down? direction and how, how have I come to receive that information? Am I do, do I trust that source and not to deem the administrative AI to be somewhat, you know, out, out of scope of that criticality? So I think that I, I think definitely a point in point that they make in terms of how it's starting to, to just gently, gently infiltrate decision making, influence decision making throughout clinical environments. Yes. It's a very good point. And actually if I am to just play devil's advocate a little bit here. The headline is very sensationalist. The first paragraph kind of differs. The headline talks about critical healthcare decisions, like you say, Christy, that when we're talking about definitions, that's important. Um, but the first paragraph talks about doctors using AI tools, such as note-taking virtual assistants, and predictive software. Now, I think 50% of that is clearly, uh, can be argued critical in influencing healthcare decisions. So predictive software helping diagnose and treat, it's, it's vague enough, but okay, fine. However, doctors that are already using AI tools that note take, I don't, I don't necessarily see that as critical. Now, that obviously depends on the quality of the note-taking. It also depends on a whole myriad of factors, which actually we talked about with Keith. One of the things he talked about was where you've got an AI system taking notes in the background, it might not seemingly influence the consultation, but it will influence what's documented and therefore perhaps the management plan. So Exactly. I can, and, and also actually one of the really interesting things he talked about was that there's a relationship between when a doctor takes their own notes, there's a relationship between the information that they received and how they document it. There's a, there's a black box there in terms of the human brain, in terms of what we decide is most relevant. We might want to tell a particular story for a particular reason in the notes. 
And that's not to say you're not saying the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth, but you might be phrasing it in a certain way or ordering it in a certain way to to show, to, to infer a certain thing to the next person reading that perhaps. And there's an argument to say that these systems aren't doing that. So there's definitely an argument to say that by having a clinical co-pilot in the background, that the consultation changes, the management changes to some degree, which, you know, the likes of, you know, Dom at Tortoise are studying, they're studying this to figure out when they do put this onto the market, what will actually happen. I, I think it's an interesting one. With the fear-mongering around a headline like the sheriff is out of town and artificial intelligence is making critical healthcare decisions, it, I, what, what I don't want to happen is a knee-jerk reaction to stop people that are sensibly perhaps piloting it or trying to f- experiment with it or use it in a certain way safely. I don't want to discourage those people because those are the people that are going to really drive adoption. Those early adopters and innovators in the space are going to be the ones that take this stuff and actually go and use it. So to kind of throw up this sort of knee-jerk policy against it, me as someone that wants to see innovation in the space, I don't particularly want that. However, I can completely understand that from a legal perspective, from a medical device perspective, from these other perspectives, that there is a conversation around, look, you can't actually use this in this way. I just feel like uh, I don't want fear-mongering headlines around this. And I want to kind of stand up and, and, and put forward the people that are, that are doing this very safely and to perhaps talk about ways to use it safely rather than to, you know, get this knee-jerk stuff. I don't know. No, I agree. I agree. I think that um, the re- the response is is what needs to be controlled on this. The identification of a risk is one thing, but it, it's how you mitigate that risk. And I think one of the things that we need to be able to do is create a uh, environment in which you can pilot these things safely, and that we're able to understand the influence of any level of intervention in a, in a care pathway, what what the downstream effects of that might be, and that we can track that properly and understand um, the overall benefit or the overall risks. Of, of any kind of intervention, any kind of uh, change to process. I think the uh, limitation at the moment is that that level of data and that level of openness with data in a healthcare setting is often not there. So, so the environment in which you can do things safely is quite narrow. So I think for me, the the response to, um, I think the word sheriff is probably not right there. I think we need to be facilitating, not policing these things. Interesting. Creating safe processes that that clinicians feel that they can they can easily engage with this without a, a you know myriad of red tape um, and somebody with a with a, a badge and a gun arriving at their door uh, i think that's it, it is enablement that we need to start to think about and continuous tracking and, and understanding what the implications of these things are a lot of which will be very positive christy can, thinking back to your time at, at, at oxford university hospitals um mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll say the final bit, NHS Trust. When, you know, saying, you can see why I've said that bit, right? Like when you're in a role like you were in and things like this are talked about, clinical co-pilots, AI reaching a clinical space and starting to interfere with, for you know, it would be one way of phrasing it or or at least alter slightly the clinical areas and patients and clinicians and all these things. What comes to mind for you? How 
do you appraise a, a technology artist or, or do you get any sort of gut reaction when you see this stuff making its way into healthcare? Like, can you, can you sort of paint a picture for us what people in those NHS trusts might be thinking or considering at this point? Absolutely. I think the first thing that, that occurs to me is, is we need to be needs led. Um, when you're translating innovation into the NHS, you need to be understanding that this is a very, very fractured, very, um, very, very strained system um, that is doing the best it can at the moment and can benefit massively from the use of, of innovation. But innovation absorption is also disruptive. So when I would look at um, a, a proposed innovation, the the first thing I'm thinking is, right, what is the need? Are we doing something to prove a point? Or are we doing something because we're really going to make lives better for patients um, and, and, and for staff? I think if you're able to really define the need well, um, then the next thing is clinical championship. I think if there's a really inspired clinician behind something where you've got that backing and your clinical teams are saying, this is the thing that's going to make the difference, that is the difference between success and failure in, in many pilots, having that champion, having that lead. And the, the other thing I would suggest is, you know, one of the things you want to look at quite early is scoping out what what success looks like. What is it that you're planning to improve? Um, what is what is how you, how will you measure success? Because sometimes we talk about oh this intervention will go on to have a lot of downstream success, but without quite measuring really what success looks like. If an innovation is to translate well into the NHS and it will invariably end up going down a procurement route at some point in mm. in its lifetime, where the NHS can absorb it commercially rather than in in a pilot form, I think being very clear about what you are seeking to achieve, how it has achieved what it has sought to achieve, and being able to validate that through the good use of data, I think is is key. Uh, I would hope that there will be an opportunity to be able to do a lot more of this in a world in which we might have more success in secure data environments, which could allow yes. um, innovators to, to start to access NHS data for this, to be able to start to get some meaningful findings, to start to publish I think the support that the NHS is starting to build, um, you know, trust by trust at Oxford University Hospitals, NHS Foundation Trust is a, a definite leader in the space of clinical innovation. And they've, they, they put a lot of time and effort behind ensuring a safe space for a landing, a landing space for innovators mm. uh, through initiatives like Hill and others that they run. Um, there are lots of NHS trusts who are doing similar things, and I think we're seeing more and more of that. I think that idea of connecting innovation to data early, connecting um, innovation to clinicians early is, is going to be um, a massive, massive improvement for, for innovators looking to translate into the NHS. So reading this article made me, I mean, almost nostalgic, actually. For so, I mean, for my sins, I used to work in legal regulation, and a lot of the conversations going on here that are apparently going on in the US, and you know, there's fast-moving technology, AI sitting the ground, uh, you know, we're, we're going to the FDA and they're saying, oh, we don't know, we don't have enough people to talk about it. It's quite interesting and it's making me wonder whether we're almost in for a bit more of, I'll take that back very slightly, which is just, you know, we were constantly in, in legal talking about this difference between prescriptive regulation and outcomes-focused regulation, which is obviously prescriptive. You see a lot more in health because the risk of something going wrong is so much higher uh, you know, you might lose your house if your if your lawyer screws up. You might lose your lo- lose your life if your a doctor screws up. Prescriptive in health, you see a lot of that. Outcomes focused, a lot more in legal because essentially, yes, something like solicitors, for example, there's 140,000 of them in the UK. There's 600 people who work at the solicitors regulation um, organisation. Then you look at like other professions, uh, um, and you know, if you if you're not interested in law, tune out now. Um, but 
you've also got some legal professions in the UK which are literally regulated by a team of two or three people for the entire profession. Mm. So they have to focus on this outcomes-focused regulation piece because, and when something like legal tech really started, those conversations really started coming in and the role of AI in law and contract review came in, there was a lot of, okay, well, what we'll do is, you know, we might take a sandbox, we'll take a more outcomes-focused approach, which is basically, we don't know the answer, we don't know where this is going, but essentially, as long as you can achieve these three things, we don't care how you do it, or at least we'll let you at least have a bit of leeway in how you do it. And it feels like as something like AI in healthcare just keeps moving so quickly, you know, it's very much covered. Even the FDA are sort of semi-informally saying it's moving too fast. We can't keep track of it. We know that what what we're talking about now, we won't be talking about in a year. It is those critical decisions that are going to be the things where we can be super prescriptive. You must have that clinician review or something like that at this point. You must have those safeguards in place. But it feels like we might need a bit more outcomes-focused approach. And I think that's going to be a bit of a hard thing for health regulators, but also clinicians, innovators within health to get their head around, which is what can we do if some of the safeguards, some of the, the rails are taken away? And we're actually allowed to play with these technologies. Play is a very bad term. I'm sorry, I don't <laughs> want to talk about playing with things in healthcare. But you know, if regulators can't keep up, then maybe I think there might be a shift in approach coming. If Hugh Harvey is listening, the expert in uh, healthcare regulation and AI, he's probably just saying you're talking rubbish. Like this isn't <laughs> going to happen. I, I am interested to see whether we're going to have to have those critical decisions, those critical points monitored those measured we're going to have to have those those key things where it's 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 what you were talking about james on tortoise you know we t- we spoke to dom last week about um what uh, he's doing with gosh and how he's overcome some of those regulatory issues by you know really focusing on what are those critical points what are those critical places and um i think possibly it's just around the side we're going to have to have a bit more leeway a bit more freedom um not too much more, I hope, as someone who will inevitably come into contact with the healthcare system very soon. It is an interesting balance, isn't it? I was speaking to a friend of mine who's a legal ethicist, and uh, we were having the discussion around the, the relevance of you know law and 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 how law can stay, um, how the legal profession can stay stay relevant in the world of AI. And I think one of the things that we touched on was the fact that he, there isn't precedent for this, and there's such a comfort point for for um, legal scholars, legal thinkers to sort of look backwards in order to look forwards. And a lot of the the area that we're we're straying into now is just it, it, there isn't there isn't enough history. So we, I think there is something to say that we may end up um, needing to consider a more principles based framework, where ultimately you're going back to you know, what is the intention of mm. of regulation, what is the intention. Or how do we get back to what it is that we're trying to achieve within those professions? Not just what does the innovation attempt to achieve, not outcomes for the innovation, but also outcomes for for the regulators and for the policymakers and for the lawmakers. What is it that is it that we are trying to achieve for society? How do we codify that rather than necessarily how do we measure things against a set of inherited norms that we that we see through through precedent and through through iterative policymaking? Mm. I don't know if that if that if that is in any way aligned to what you're saying here, but no, it, it I think it, it's interesting, isn't it, that what you're talking about is uh, in part quite a lot of nuance and quite a lot of 
information that will have to go into a quite difficult and complex decision-making process to think about fundamentally the way that we go about thinking about this stuff or policing this stuff or listening. And what I, st- what I find tough at the minute, we work a lot in content. We do so much content for our clients. We long form and short form, um, but we're in a short form content world broadly. But healthcare right now, particularly when it comes to AI, particularly where you start using words like ethicist, someone that's actually trained in breaking down the ethical principles behind our future, it's long form. Like, it's long form that you need. It, you need a tension span from people to sit people down and to have a debate that goes far beyond a less than 60 second clip about something sensationalist versus another 60 second clip or less clip about something sensationalist. It requires a very nuanced and in-depth conversation, which I'm encouraged by the fact that people listen to podcasts. People actually sit and listen to things for 40 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half sometimes, like even longer if you listen to like Joe Rogan's or all the rest of it. So there are people that are going to be involved in this conversation. It's just, I find it, I just genuinely, in my day-to-day life, I do find it really difficult to engage in conversations about where AI affects our future in healthcare because people are looking to just shorten it to very much a, well, is it this, this, or this? And it's like, eh, like, can we just have a conversation about it? So yeah, I think it is tough just because of people's attention spans and what they want to spend their time on. Like you just want, they just want to get to a decision. Yes, I think Professor Andrew Morris does it, has recently at the Oxford Martin School done a presentation on um, the the fourth industrial revolution AI and done some comparative exploration into really how it compares to the previous industrial revolutions and those points in time that we can really say are, are groundbreaking. And one of the things that does strike me is just the rate, the pace mm. at which innovation is moving at this point in time. Sometimes I think we can see it as relatively slow from a regular, from a regulatory perspective or from a legal perspective, or from a policy perspective. These things can seem like really far off, very heavy conversations that, that need to be had at a, at a very, very deep and nuanced level, as you say. But really, when we look back at the last five years, it is extraordinary how far we've come in, in even being able to start to understand and interpret some of these concepts within any kind of framework. The, the the rate of innovation, the the scale, the pace, the the uptake is enormous, and I think they'll become they'll, they'll come that critical moment where we have a problem statement in front of us that we have to solve, and at that point in time, I think we will we will need to have a bit more of a radical rethink on on how these things come together. But I think you know component parts of this are already underway. You know, you look at the evolution of how data is being used in the NHS over the last five years; it's enormous. Um, you look at the way that real world uh, evidence is being used in regulators, there's a huge uptake. So I- I- iterative points of improvement will come to a um, to a point of coalescence, I think. And I think we, we're we not far off that. I love that. I remember in the presentation from Keith, he was talking about, he showed us diagrams of how large language models work. And we talk about, you know, the point at which the pace really took off. And there's a, there's a point in time, a, a, a specific point in time where the AI started training itself. And all of a sudden, the back of it was broken. 
because all of a sudden you did not need humans. And yes, of course, you need them at some point in there, but their role became less and less. And he showed a diagram of how a GPT-4 is trained, how a, a model that has these multiple nodes rather than one single, uh, the terminology I'm butchering, but um, the difference between GPT-4 and GPT-3 basically, but the fact that like, you now have an AI that can write something, an AI that checks it, an AI that iterates it, and then you can just literally just fire that round and round and round and round and round to just get closer and closer and closer and closer to truth or perfection or, or whatever. But in terms of training, yeah, you can have an AI that draws a picture of a cat, an AI that says how close it is to the cat, an AI that then takes that and iterates it and makes it closer to a cat. And then you go round and round and round and round and round and then you've got a photographic image of a cat that's just impossible to discern whether it's AI or not. You know, it, it's wild that that can be done. And, 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 but as you say, that was the point at which like pace really took off. Um, and yeah, it's it, it's tough to keep up as a human being. <laughs> like it really is. It, it is. Um, let alone um, a regulator. Exciting time to be a part of health and tech at this convergence point, where we're starting to see the you know the the you know this will inevitably be a data problem. We will be constrained by the access to data, and so that there are so many really large-scale initiatives nationally here um, in, in the UK, but also internationally to start to really think about joining up data and making an, an unconstraining data. When you unconstrain data and then you have that immense ability to compute, it, we are in a different world. It is a very, very exciting, slightly terrifying at times, but it is a, you know, it, it is a really unique place to be um, for all of us in, in med and tech innovation. And just before we move on to our next story, um, you, you just mentioned there, that we will be constrained by the access to data. Mm. How do you feel about the commercialization of access to data? And how does that fit into a kind of NHS business model where like, who does the data actually belong to? Who has the right to sell it? Who has the right to sandbox it? How do you feel about that? Um, I think it's a, it's, it's, it's our business, really. I think that you've described there, um, and I think that I think the issue that sometimes we face is that you take a blanket approach to data. Data is one thing. Data is not one thing. Mm. There is data that is derived from patients as they go through an NHS pathway, which does belong to the NHS trust in a sense. There is a human element to that, a personal element to that. The data that that describes the human being that that belongs to the individual. I think. You know, when we think about data, sometimes that blanket approach, and there's a lot in the media at the moment around commercialization of data, commercializing the NHS data. You've just described that as commercial access to data. I think that's a really key point. I think mm. that where we can make really big strides is to consider things from an access model. It's not about ownership in data. It's not about hoarding data and creating some kind of proprietary database somewhere that has some immense theoretical value. You can't act value in that way from data. Data has to be applied in order to be able to, to be valuable. Data is valuable as it responds to a business problem. So thinking about access models and allowing the NHS a, uh, and helping supporting the NHS to, in creating a safe access model by which data can be applied to, to problems and data and value can be derived from data yes. and from the application of data rather than in data, I think is absolutely critical. I don't subscribe to the idea that um, amalgamating all the NHS data into a single place will suddenly create a, a you know, 
perfectly valuable data asset mm. unless you are able to start to say how how do we use that how do we derive meaningful um, translatable innovation from that that will deliver a value to patients uh, deliver a value to the NHS and also help to deliver sort of um, UK PLC value um, in our in our ecosystem of innovators I think I think that has got to be the key it's the access rather than the data itself so our our next story today from Med City News <laughs> I, I laugh because it's just a just a poetic headline tools for better interoperability are here but providers aren't adopting them uh and this article as i say from med city news uh says there are plenty of tools and data sharing standards available to foster a more cohesive and integrated approach to healthcare what a wonderful start however providers aren't really adopting them experts say during a panel uh hugh why aren't they adopting them? So, I mean, I love this article. This is this is literally the summation of like everything we've been talking about. We've been having these interoperability questions and, and debates for what feels like years. I, I've not been in, uh, you know, for, I think for as long as I've been in this sector, 20, 30 times that we've been talking about interoperability of tech solutions and how it's uh, in, in healthcare. And I think, you know, it's it's either an infuriating conversation you want no part of or something you get really passionate about um, and, you know, really exciting, excited about. And a lot of those people have put so much effort, uh, really val- valiant, really important effort into solving some of these interoperability challenges, looking at these new data standards, things like open EHR, things like the consortiums for bringing these interoperability standards together. So, you know, as the article and even just the headline says, we are really close to solving these problems from a technical perspective. What we're not close to doing is solving them from an actually people using them perspective, because much like a load of other tech solutions, it's really hard to implement them in a way that people use. It's really hard to, yeah, I think there's a fascinating conversation that is covered in this article, which is essentially a summary of an interesting panel between um, the head of a US healthcare provider and um, uh, someone from the uh, the Office for National Coordination of Healthcare or something like that in the US, um, whose sole job is essentially to bring interoperability into healthcare. I mean, they have other duties as well, but that is basically what they do uh, and ensure that federally, the US has a healthcare system that works together and patients can go where they want to and get, you know, their health records just seamlessly sent across from one provider to another to, to, to within network, externally at the network, state to state. So, you know, this is really exciting. But I think I think it just, you know, providers are adopting these tools that use these standards. Providers are bringing them in. Providers are using them. But there's just one perfect quote in this that pretty much sums it up. When it's easier to fax something, people will continue to fax things. There are adoption <laughs> issues. It's so true. Essentially, we are throwing money at solutions that, yes, they solve the interoperability challenges, but the doctor looks at them and says, I have to go through three rounds of sign-in to get onto this system. It's so true. For this system, and then sign into another one to do something that, again, this one might not be interoperable, but I need it to send it to the other thing that is interoperable with the thing I want to send it to to a hospital down the road. So um, and if you, if, if you know, the facts that, I mean, I don't know how many fax machines are left in the NHS, but clearly there's still quite a few in the, in the uh, US hospitals. They're going, okay, well, like at, um, 
try and remember my 64 character length password for this system to log in and send it down the road. Or I could just shove it in this machine that's next to me and send it through. I could just print it out to the patient who can take it with them when they go to the next hospital. And I think that's a really fascinating challenge to overcome. And it speaks to not just, as the article talks about, you know, how do we get, how do we make this process easier? But that general piece, and I think this is something that needs to be stressed for every developer in health tech, is go into a hospital, work out who's using your platform, and understand what their problems are before you build. You can solve the challenge on a technical side of things, but if it doesn't work the way the doctor's going to use it, then you've not solved the challenge. And that's mm. fundamentally the issue with interoperability now. We could do it, but we can't do it if we're not solving parallel challenges at the same time. Absolutely. It's that it's that needs-led thing you know, we touched on earlier in terms of looking at innovation and translating it to use. You know, do, do I does it meet the need, um, or are we are we perceiving a need that really isn't there right now in front? Of, it's not a critical need, and therefore, it's difficult to translate anything which is more speculative in its benefits into a health system which is just trying to keep afloat today. Um, and then, especially if you layer that on with, I'm now making a, a clinician's life more co- more complicated. Um, it, it is a very difficult thing. Um, I think. A lot of the work that we do at Arcturus is about joining together large data sets, and this is in a research setting generally, so it's not um, necessarily at that point of care interface. But if you are going to succeed in in convincing somebody to work in a certain way, they've got to be able to see the benefits um, actualized for themselves. The ability to show clinicians a different view of their data and to be able to demonstrate that that benefit to them and help them to translate that benefit into the way that they work becomes absolutely critical these are very busy people with very serious responsibilities um and as you know there are an absolute plethora of different models and different interoperability techniques and technologies out there all seeking to solve this this big problem that's been over, you know, stated that the data doesn't um the data doesn't connect the data isn't there when you need it all of those things might be true um, but unless your needs led and your purpose is well defined um you are you're going to be going in circles i think Certainly, you, know, you look at it, what, what is fit for purpose, and a lot of the models that we see um, in in healthcare today are fit for one particular purpose. Um, you know, you look at some of the very you know popular common data models, and they don't have the breadth to be able to absorb quite a lot of the information, which becomes really relevant for a particular purpose. And so, somebody iterates it, and then you've got another model, and then you someone looks at that and iterates it, and you've got another model. And before you know, you know, you've got 30, 40 interoperability models, and you're thinking, oh my goodness, you know, this was supposed to be a, a one size fits all solution, and it just it just isn't. Um, so, I do think there's a big challenge for translating interoperability technologies in um, really what is the purpose of it? What am I trying to achieve? What information is critical to get from A to B? Mm. And then what information is, is critical for, to, to, to see? I mean, uh, I, I, I think his name's Dr. Nick Barnes, former uh, older Hay CIO, I think. He, he does a fantastic piece on interoperability and the difference. And it very much focuses on a, on a two-layer piece, which is that technical side, which is, do the systems communicate? Can we send data? And then that presentational layer at the top, which is once the systems send data, are you showing me the right data that I need to see within that data set? It's like, I, I've got it all, but I have to sift through it to find anything that's relevant to me or the patient that I'm speaking to right now. And I think that's a that's a really interesting 
like evolution of that that needs piece as you say needs are complex not every need is the same Absolutely. And, you know, when we are looking at um, some of the interoperability models that are very um, commonly used, you know, the OMOP standards, there's a lot of really good um, information that can be standardized to a great level. You Invariably, though, when you're looking at the, the pointy end of some clinical research in an oncology setting, are going to be going, right, well, h- how am I going to start to integrate uh, into that particular model all the information in, in histopathology or the genomic information that might be relevant and uh, the answer of well stick it all in an other column effectively creates an <laughs> unstructured resource um, so it does become about the ontologies really as well not just the, um, the the model itself but the meaning and the context and how you relate these things to each other and I think you mentioned you know uh, conversations that you, you've had around um, innovators working within Great Ormond Street and they do a huge amount of work on the human genome ontology and understanding how to build in all those critical factors when you're dealing with precision medicine into models that are able to be translatable across multi-disciplines. I think that sort of work today is really that next evolution, as you say, the next step is really saying, well, the technology exists. It's not a technology problem. It's a communication problem now. (laughs) So what is it we're trying to communicate? We know we can do it. um, But what is it? What is meaningful for everybody to see and understand? And how do we how do we preserve context in that? And how do we ensure that we don't lose valuable pieces of information along the line in the in the name of standardization, um, which which you know give you some some amazing insight into what, what a human being's experience of healthcare has been? I think we have to be so careful to balance standardization um, with with individual um, context. I get the sense you're 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 not saying that ChatGPT is the answer here. Like I, I would suggest, I think that um, I think there's so, there, are, there are places in which ChatGPT maybe, but there are a lot of places in which a very a much more nuanced, much more um, sophisticated approach to the individual problem um, is going to be needed. It's never going to be a, a blanket answer. I think there's, I think that is one of the big um, challenges. Is sometimes in healthcare we consider. Uh, Industry is one thing we consider, you know, uh, users of health data is one thing. Um, and actually, there's just such a diverse set of requirements across across the healthcare system. And we're, we're very privileged to be in a technology space at the moment where we can start to consider those things. It is a step, you know, we, we look at these things as barriers and challenges, but they are, they are problems of success. And I think we can't underestimate that. Problems of success. I like that phrase. I like that phrase. And we are desperate for a silver bullet. Like we are. We're, we're, we would love for generative AI to come in and solve all of our problems. We would love all of the interoperability systems to all of a sudden talk to each other technically and the human factors bit as well. We'd love it. We'd love it. And I think we're we're craving that, aren't we? We're craving everything to just be united because as people, I think we do feel united. We really do. And we feel like we're battling against technology quite a lot or trying to figure out where we put this brand new tool of 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 generative AI or whatever it is. Like, But as people we know, as people we as people that put a hand on a patient, as the the doctors, the nurses, the OTs, the physios, that everybody that puts a hand on a patient knows intuitively that healthcare is a human game. We're just trying to make all of these tools work for us. We're trying to spend as much time as we physically can with the human being. And anything that just shows us that we might be able to spend a little bit more time with them. We're going to jump on it. We're going to call it our savior. We're going to talk talk about all the ways that it can be used. We're going to use it for unofficial means because it is helping us in our job. These are not 
uh, instances of of malicious intent or anything and when we're and when you get the slap on the wrist by the article that says the sheriff's now back in town you need to stop using whatsapp you need to stop using chat gpt to summarize your notes it's like oh but i got 10 minutes back to spend with that person i got the time to connect with them and figure out that there was actually something else that i needed to work on with them from a clinical perspective and i don't know it's 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 sort of a bit exhausting to just be pegged back all the time, I think, for people that find a workaround to use this new stuff. And I don't know, from an interoperability perspective, yeah, we just want stuff to talk to each other. And I, I think that the article could have been phrased a slightly different way. It could it could have been phrased as um, that the tools are here and technically they're working. We now just need to work on the human bit. Like that could be another uh, way think- of framing it, you know? Yeah, I would possibly frame it as, um, as you say, you want things to talk to each other. Uh, I think things can talk to each other these days. I think the, the question that faces us is, what do you want them to say? <laughs> what is it that you're trying to communicate? Yeah. Um, and that is where, you know, we, yeah, we really need to be so needs-led. We need to understand what is the important thing that this thing is going to tell me. And if we're going to, we're going to sift and filter and organize information, we, you mm. will lose information along the way. Gain information depending on on how generative the the tools are that you're you're using, but mm. it's what what are they saying? We built the communication platform. Now it's about that that training, that understanding of of what the communication form and and the meaningful information is. So let's frame it positively. They are talking to each other technically. We now just need to we, we've got the empty pipes. We now just need to talk about what we're filling the empty pipes with to make that entire system most useful. If we have that conversation then all of a sudden we might feel That's, like we've got a lot more interoperability because it is actually here. Absolutely. And and the leaders in those conversations will be the, the clinicians and the patients. And that's the important thing. You know, we need to make sure that those are the voices that we're, we're yes. um, searching. And to murder your metaphor, James, we need to talk about how long it takes to get to the tap as well. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> Thanks for stretching that here. I think that has now gone as far as it can go. That metaphor. Uh, oh, I can make it work. Maybe after the podcast. <laughs> well, thanks everybody. That has been a run through some of the stories of the week. Um, Christy, before we let you go, Arcturus, you've mentioned a few bits that you're doing, joining together large data sets, access, working with NHS organizations, lots of stuff that you've mentioned. What are you excited about at the moment? What are you working on that's like really interesting or uh, impactful? I think um, oh, there there are so many things. It's difficult. It's difficult in this in this amazing point of innovation. I think mm. in 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 data tech and health, there are so many different things that that are arising at the moment. Some of the conversations I'm most excited about, which probably says more about me and probably me being somebody you don't want to sit next to at a dinner party, is the <laughs> regulatory space. Um, <laughs> oh no! Please, brilliant. Um, I really, um, there some some uh, our real world evidence team at Arcturus is doing a lot of work in understanding how real world evidence, how real world data is supporting regulatory decisions at the moment. And that for me, to just look at the progress that has been made in being able to understand the real picture of what's happening to patients. And especially when you're looking at things like um, NICE submissions, where you're about, about translating those particular innovations into use, it's incredibly exciting for me to see the uptake of real world evidence um, in those particular spaces. Um, our evidence capabilities now are, are you have extended sort of beyond your, your 
supportive insights and into comparative effectiveness studies that we can derive from NHS data from ordinary patients going through the care pathways, which means that when you've got a uh, um, phase 2B single-arm trial and you do Mm. not have an easy or ethical route to uh, a control population for that, you can actually look at the real world setting and understand how your particular intervention is performing against standard of care today with up-to-date and really deep, rich data that can show you um, very meaningful insights around that. And that's really exciting for me. I think the ability to start to translate innovation into the UK based on UK data, UK patients, and really meeting a need um, and being able to evidence that you can meet the need of those patients is, is so exciting. And if you had to give advice to health tech companies right now, whether it's people with ideas using data, whether it's health tech companies that are generating data sets in search of access to data, if you had to give advice to health tech companies right now, what what are you saying to health tech organizations currently? I think I think I would definitely say that, you know, be very clear um, on what on on your focus. I think we can. We, you know, there's so much going on at the moment. You can pull, be pulled in a lot of directions. So really carving out what it is you're setting out to achieve. Getting really good clinical engagement. Engaging early with um, with with uh, entities like the Secure Data Environments or HDR UK or others who can be out there to help you to to, to guide you to the right sort of data to help to understand. Um, your target population or the the environment into which you're hoping to translate your technology is really, really key. Uh, I think that understand your regulatory environment, know what you have to do. Uh, there are a lot of barriers to innovation that often get surfaced where um, everyone is just engaging that little bit too late with those ideas around information governance um, and, and ethics and transparency, public and patient engagement and involvement. All of these things um, are, are things that are expected these days to help you to translate into use. And the earlier you can get onto that, the earlier you can start to understand the critical elements on that pathway um, to use and adoption, I think the, the easier that conversation becomes. And then I think the other thing really is take the advice and implement it. Sometimes with innovators, you have an idea, it's the great, this great idea, and, and um, we can get really set in what we're trying to achieve. And it's just listening to the people around you and, and taking heed of those um, conversations that you're, the feedback that you get and implementing that. And I think, pr- you know, primarily as well, if you're thinking about how, you, how to get your tech to patients, it's listening to those patients, what is it that they really need? Um, taking, the, taking the feedback you get from those um, patient engagement activities and really implementing it, not just using it as a, as a nice tick box exercise because you've been told you have to consult, use that information. And then, then that becomes a, a valuable piece of commercial activity, not just something that you're doing to, to get to compliance fees. Interesting. One thing that I've really taken from you today is this needs focus. I think in in so many of your answers, like being clear on the need, analyzing the need, being focused on the need, I think that is such a solid place to start, whether you're coming at it from the entrepreneur's angle, whether you're coming at it from the buyer angle, so supply side, demand side. I think no matter where you are, if we are focused on need, then 
that is to use the phrase that I don't like, but low hanging fruit. That is the low hanging fruit. That is the fruit that we can take. That is where everyone's actually motivated and incentivized the most. You would hope, um, and finding those areas, yeah, by identifying the need. I think that's such a such a great message for people. Christy, thank you so much. Yeah, for people that want to get in touch with you, we'll learn more about Arcturus. What's the best way for them to do so? Arcturus has a website, Arcturus Data, um, and so you can look us up, absolutely, or you can get in touch with me uh, on LinkedIn, or uh, you, know, you can have my email address through the podcast. If everybody's happy to disseminate it, you'll be more than welcome to get in touch with me. Um, it is something I really enjoy um, as part of my job is, is talking to people and understanding really what's happening on the ground. So if anybody has any any reason to get in touch, please, please do. Open door policy. Beautiful. Uh, Christy Hugh, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, this has been the Health Tech Pigeon podcast. Uh, we'll be back next week. Um, and yeah, if you want to grab the newsletter for all of those stories and links, you can head to healthtechpigeon.com. Uh, thank you everybody for listening.